This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Yes, from Kalamata, coming to you live from the beautiful Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. Interesting week. One of the great things about uh, where I'm situated is, and, and one of the things that you should know is if you come here, and you should come here, uh, rent a car, because there are so many great places to visit within an hour, an hour's drive. And keeping in mind, an hour's drive here, uh, you know, the distances are a little deceiving because an hour, you're, you're, you know, you're winding your way through the mountains. So it's not, you know, that great a distance. It just takes a little time to get there. But the drives are always exceptional. I mean, you, you, you cannot imagine the views here where you've got the mountains on one side and the oceans on the other. Uh, ancient Messini, we just, uh, we went there yesterday. Uh, the boys and I and my nephew uh, Nick and some friends here that we've met in Greece, uh, an amazing ruins uh, that were actually, uh, what happened was when the Greek Empire fell and the Roman Empire sort of took over and the Romans moved in, they were so impressed with Greek culture and Greek civilization that they started to, to reproduce a lot of the uh, the Greek statues and the temples and so forth, and, and, and they absorbed much of Greek culture into the new Roman Empire. Uh, and so when you're looking at a lot of these uh, Greek statues, they're in marble. And one of the things that I learned was, or uh, one of the things that I've learned is, these statues are Roman reproductions. The Greeks worked primarily in bronze. And in times of war... Often, the Greeks would end up melting down those statues and so forth to make weapons and shields. And, of course, the, the Greeks were always at, at war, the Spartans and the Athenians, a lot of fighting amongst themselves, of course. Uh, so when you see a Greek statue in marble, it's actually a Roman reproduction. Just one of the many things I've learned here while uh, uh, we're enjoying our stay. Now in our third week, heading into our fourth week, actually, but this is our third show live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata. Interesting week. Little North had a mishap, fell off some monkey bars, and 
broke his arm. Uh, I fractured his arm in two places, two hairline fractures near the wrist. We took him to the hospital here in Kalamata. I have to say, thoroughly impressed with the health care uh, here. Within an hour, he saw a doctor, was sent down to x-rays, received an x-ray, went back to the doctor, and had a full cast on his arm and a sling, as I say, in less than an hour. No charge, because we're tourists. So very, very appreciative to the, uh, the staff at the hospital here, at the, uh, here in Kalamata. Uh, one of the things, though, that's interesting, you'll hear, and I'm saying it a lot now to, uh, to North as he's walking around in his cast, is Sagasiga, which I guess a little tra- translation is slowly, slowly. I'm, I'm always telling him, go slowly. You know, I don't want you to, to fall down and, and hurt your other arm. But you hear, you hear people saying this all the time, especially to children. Sagasiga, slow down, slow down. But it's more than just slow down. It's, it's really a philosophy here in Greece. And I'm starting to understand that. You, you, you often hear uh, people say, you know, we're on Greek time, which might mean a person may show up a little bit later than anticipated. They're on Greek time. So Sagasiga is this way of life. Just relax, slow down, appreciate things around you. Sagasiga. And I'm doing that now. And, and one of the things I find is I'm driving through the mountains, whether I'm on my way to ancient Messenia or some other place, a restaurant or another beach, is I'm finding I'm just finding time to contemplate. Contemplate the universe, if you will. And that's where we're going to go in this first hour of the program, because uh, my guest, Jim Elvidge, likes to muse on the universe, the mysteries of the universe. Jim has a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He has applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures. He also holds four patents in digital signal processing. Beyond the high-tech realm, however, Jim Elvidge has years of experience as a musician, writer, and truth seeker. He merged his technology skills with his love of music, developed one of the first PC-based digital music samplers, and co-founded Radio Amp, the first private label online streaming streaming radio uh, companies. And uh, you can follow his blog, and it's a fascinating read always, uh, theuniversesolved.com, Musings on the Nature of Reality. A great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Jim Elvich. Jim, how are you? Great, Richard, and uh, thank you very much for the, the nice welcome, and congratulations on your, uh, your, stay in, your lengthy stay in Greece. I've been there a few times myself, and I can understand why you like it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I can't wait to get home, obviously, to see the mighty Aphrodite. The boys miss uh, their mom, but um, I tell you, once this place gets a hold on you, you just want to come back again and again. I can't wait till next summer. <laughs> uh, Jim, yeah, I've, um, I've always enjoyed your blogs, and so much to talk about uh, tonight. But I want to I wanna talk about something that you've um, written about fairly recently. And it's a very interesting title. It's called Creating Souls is Like Boiling the Ocean. Creating Souls is Like Boiling the Ocean. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, that's a, that was a little bit of a bizarre one, wasn't it, the, uh, the title there? But, you know, I was actually um, thinking about it one day and thinking how if you're trying to establish sort of a, a large-scale movement or trend or something like that, and people use the phrase boil the ocean, meaning, you know, you're, you're really trying to make something significant happen, you know, in, in technology, maybe you're developing the next, you know, iPad, the next big thing, something like that. Um, and, and thinking a little bit about, you know, the actual literal translation of boiling the ocean, you know, what if you wanted to just raise the temperature of the ocean by a degree, um, you know, and I'm thinking, how would you do that? You, you certainly wouldn't want to take a heat lamp on the, you know, the shores of the ocean and try to heat up one little section of it and expect it to kind of, you know, diffuse throughout the entire ocean. That would take forever. And I actually did some calculations because I, I just think this kind of thing is fun to, to think about. Um, that a thousand watt heat lamp would take, you know, tens of thousands of times the the length of the universe to actually heat the ocean. But even then, it would never work because um, ocean heat is radiated into the atmosphere, convection processes are inefficient, all that kind of stuff. So the way you do it is you you do what you might call a sort of recursive distribution function. So first thing is say, well, let's put heat lamps every square meter of the ocean. Um, but, but even that doesn't work because the, the, the amount of time that it would take for convection to bring it down to the bottom of the ocean would, would be tremendously lengthy. So then you think, well, maybe if there was a way to apply a heat lamp to every cubic meter of the ocean, now you've got something. So, you know, as you think about this, you think about, you know, ways of kind of distributing the function, and you may use the same analogy for, say, starting a movement, Occupy Wall Street, something like that. You're certainly not going to get very far if you're standing in a street corner with a megaphone uh, trying to convince 300 million people to follow your, your ideals. What you need to do is get maybe a thousand other people and send them to, to cities, and, and even then, each one of them has a big task uh, to convince the number of people in each city, so maybe they each get a thousand people. So this idea of subdividing your goal into smaller goals, but passing along the information needed to uh, to make that goal happen in the in the ever smaller areas is you know there's a lot of analogies to this, and one is you may think about gray goo. You've probably heard that expression with nanotech. It's, you know, it, it's a way that um, instructions can be sent to, uh, to nanobots, and you could send this with this distributed recursive mechanism. So what does this all have to do with souls? Well, there are a number of writers and researchers who um, put forth the idea that we live in a sea of Consciousness, and maybe this is where the sea, the ocean metaphor, you know, kind of, kind of struck me. That we live in a sea of consciousness, and we're all actually connected. But so, why do we feel so individual? We feel individual because um, we we have compartmentalized some segment of that consciousness, and we are acting within that segment to uh, to learn things, to experience uh, physical reality, so that we can. Uh, learn and grow and evolve. So that that programming, if you will, that idea of segmenting little 
chunks of consciousness could be a similar kind of thing to the ocean metaphor where it's kind of recursive. You start with big chunks of consciousness and then you break that down to smaller chunks and then smaller chunks within that until you get to the point where you have an individual, a human, an entity. Um, and as those individuals raise their consciousness level, learn, and things like that, um, what they're really doing is raising the overall consciousness of the the big universal consciousness. So these ideas are not they're not actually new ideas. You know they've they've been in um, you know writings throughout the ages, religious writings, spiritual writings, shamanistic writings, um, and traditions throughout the ages that were all connected. But it's starting to kind of make some sense even in a scientific perspective and a mathematical perspective when you you think about you know mechanisms like this um, you know it actually kind of ties together and that fits nicely into your one of the overarching themes that you discuss is that we are living in a programmed reality so uh, you know, we could get into who that programmer might be uh, a little bit later. Jim Elvich is with us, electrical engineer and scientific truth seeker, who is uh, here to discuss uh, leading-edge stories, uh, debates, philosophy from the fields of cosmology, nanotech, artificial intelligence, physics, virtual reality, gaming, and metaphysics. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I did when I came over here was we packed some uh, some DVDs for the boys just in case we had a rain day. And uh, one of their favorite uh, movies, of course, is uh, the whole Lord of the Rings uh, series. They're fascinated by uh, Frodo's invisibility cloak. And from what I understand, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the, uh, the first, you call it a meta-screen, uh, lightweight invisibility cloak has been created. Tell me about that. Yeah, this is actually really interesting, and, and, and people have probably heard of invisibility cloaks for a long time. Uh, Harry Potter explores that, that whole idea as well. Um, and actually, I, when I was a kid, I used to think about, uh, you know, if there was a way to bend light around an object, so let's say you put something on that when the light comes in, um, it, it goes completely around you and so that what you're actually seeing when you look at somebody is what's behind them you see what i mean so so there's Jim, that let me just sorry to interrupt I, I hate to jump in here at this point uh let's let's take a time out when we come back let's get back to this invisibility cloak jim elvidge scientific truth seeker here on the conspiracy show live from the elite city resort in beautiful Kalamata, greece the music you hear as we come back in is, uh, I believe, from the movie The 300 Spartans. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's, uh, it tends to be a little gruesome in places, some, some uh, pretty bloody uh, battle scenes, as you can well imagine, but uh, an incredible movie, uh, The uh, 300 Spartans. And very apropos, of course, as we broadcast live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, uh, Greece. Uh, Jim Elvich is with us, and you can follow his wonderful blog, Musings on the Nature of Reality. Uh, his website is theuniversesolved.com, and I've linked up to that on uh, the homepage of my website, richardserrett.com. Just click on Jim Elvich's name, and it'll take you right there, and uh, enjoy his, his blogs. We were talking about this new meta-screen, a lightweight invisibility cloak, uh, that uh, is now reality, Jim, and you were sort of describing the, the, the initial sort of rudimentary types of cloaks that they were experimenting with. Uh, and then we, uh, 
we broke for a break. So let's go back to that and, and, uh, and just recap. Sure. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, the, the, the initial idea was something like this. Um, imagine if you had, a, say, a camera behind you pointing uh, away from your back. And what that camera was seeing was projected on a screen that was in front of you. So if somebody is perfectly positioned in front of you looking at that screen, what they'll actually see is what's behind you. So effectively, they'll feel like they're looking through you. Now, you can imagine that that's only going to work in certain angles and of course you'd have to have you know a, a, a matrix of cameras or something like that a matrix of all these screens um, so it doesn't seem like it would scale very well and you know be very flexible and certainly it's not so the early invisibility ideas used little techniques like this and you just had to be positioned you know perfectly to, to be able to get the effect um, and then, then they went to uh, something that was uh, called metamaterials, and those are uh, materials that have different diffraction um, characteristics. So diffraction is how light gets bent. You know, when the light goes through a prism, it gets, it gets bent by the glass. Um, it gets bent in water. So all different, um, you know, clear materials will have different properties that, that bend the light in different ways. So by carefully making these materials, they can make cloaks that guide the light around an object. So let's say I'm wearing something that's sort of cylindrical or some you know, particular shape that's made of these materials that will guide the light around the object so that when people look at it, what they're actually seeing is, is behind it. So it's a little bit more sophisticated than that first sort of you know, camera screen idea that I talked about. But again, it, it has some limited applications. Well, what these uh, researchers at the University of Texas were working on is a really cool idea. Um, and it's, it's certainly not um, uh, polished up by any means. They're, they're just experimenting with it at this point. But what happens is it's a, it's a screen that produces an out-of-phase uh, light field that cancels the reflected radiation. So like when you look at something, you're seeing the reflection of light off of that thing that, that comes to your eye. Well, imagine if you could take that same reflection but invert the waveform, the light waveform, so that it cancels out, like two waves canceling out um, in every different direction. And it's certainly a, a, a challenging engineering uh, you know, feat to be able to accomplish that, but they have done it at microwave levels. Um, and they're working on getting it up to uh, visible light levels. So it's a completely different technology than the metamaterials. But it, it actually reminds me, there was a short story by Arthur Clarke uh, years ago, wrote something called the Fenton Silencer, and it was this uh, invention that, uh, if I remember right, the character's name was Rupert Fenton, created, and it would just sit in the middle of the room, and it would take all the sounds coming in, and it would invert them, and transmit them back out so that it canceled the sounds and it would effectively suck all the noise out of the room. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a fascinating concept, but in a way, that's what this invisibility idea does, except it does it with light. It cancels out the, the reflected light. So pretty that cool, like pretty cool more technology. like true invisibility to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the metamaterials are obviously very challenging to get those right. If you're wearing something, you know, it's going to have wrinkles in it and folds, and as you move around, all the angles change. So having something that could 
uh, respond at different angles is, is I think, really more likely a, a, a way of the future for, for cloaking. But, but you know, imagining, daring to imagine the battlefield uh, applications for such a device. I mean, if you could, if you could wrap a fighter jet in this or a, a soldier, uh, I mean, this would totally uh, tilt the balance in, in, uh, in warfare. Absolutely, and you know the, uh, the the fighter jets that are cloaked that have radar cloaking, those have very sharp edges and, and very um, straight angles. And the reason for that is so that um, it, it can reflect and cancel uh, or absorb things, um, and it doesn't have the the curved edges that cause uh, a lot of radar traces and things like that. So, you know, as these technologies improve. Now you can go back to normal shaped airplanes and and uh, tanks and and uh, you know uniforms and things like that. How far away do you think? Um, I'm asking you to speculate. How far are we away from this type of invisibility becoming um, marketable or or uh, accessible? Well, I would think for for things like vehicles or for military applications. It can't be, I, I'm just totally speculating here, but it can't be more than 10, 10 years away um, for something that we might wear, um, you know, probably much further than that. But, you know, if you think about it, the, the implications of this are really kind of staggering because you realize that the technology, although it's at its infancy, you can see where it's going. And you can imagine at some point um, people will be able to cloak themselves to visible light. And so if we're, say, I don't know, 30 years away from being able to do that, then some other civilization that is only 30 years advanced from us can be, for all intents and purposes, invisible to us. That's, a, that's a, an interesting point, actually, and it, it leads me into one of your, your other blogs, uh, blog postings, and that has to do with alien hunters, uh, and you're saying they're sort of looking for aliens in all the wrong places, uh, that the idea of SETI, uh, you know, trying to uh, locate radio transmissions in outer space is, is, is probably a waste of time. Yeah, I, I kind of think so, Richard. I, I mean, I, I did a, a, a calculation on, on one of the uh, articles that I wrote about exactly that. And if you figure out how, um, how far away something would have to be to be able to receive a signal that we're sending or vice versa, and given the power that we send it out at and taking into account how that signal gets attenuated through space, it doesn't get very far beyond the solar system before the level of power drops down to the, effectively the cosmic background radiation. So it's, it's lost in the noise. So this, this whole thing is based on the assumption that, A, other civilizations, aliens, ETs, or whatever, are using radio technology. Why would they? Why you know, even if they do, if they fo exactly follow our course of evolution, just the way we did, the duration of time that we're using radio waves is actually pretty short. We we don't we don't broadcast that much anymore. You know, shortwave is dead. Big powerful stations are dead. Um, you know, we're using Wi-Fi, low low uh, you know low um, 
power technologies, uh, digital technologies, uh, lower power satellite feeds, and things like that. So our, you know, if you will, our um, footprint, our radio footprint has already come and gone. You know, the the amount of radio wave generated by the Earth now is in decline. So right. even if it's other civilizations a, were doing the same years thing. and out, it's over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so we would have to catch catch somebody at exactly the right time, and even then they'd have to be really close or significantly more powerful than what we're doing now. And, and all of it mathematically just doesn't make a, a lot of sense. So there are some astronomers who are starting to think out of the box a little bit, and they're thinking in terms of, you know, what kind of spectral signatures might be created by you know, a really advanced civilization. And there was a concept back in the 60s uh, called the Dyson Sphere, uh, named after a physicist. And that's the idea that uh, a civilization at some point learns to utilize all of the radiation from the star that it's around. So it creates this, perhaps, a sphere around the star. But I think that's flawed thinking, again, because it, it assumes that we have this increasing thirst for and need for power. So what we need today in terms of watts of power for the human race, uh, 100 years will be, we'll need 100 times as much, and that's going to keep on going to the point where we have to um, tap into all of, this, all of the source of the uh, energy from our star. But we're actually not heading that direction. We're, you know, Devices that we need to communicate are getting lower and lower in power. We need less power as time goes on. Um, vehicles are getting lower and lower in power. A lot of the technologies that are being built now can move you from one place to another with less power than before. So, you know, even even lighting and, you know, we already talked about radio waves in, in decline. So. You know, all of the needs that we used to have for huge amounts of power are, are kind of going away. So I don't think Dyson's fears are going to be something that a really advanced civilization is, is going to have anyway. So I don't, I don't even think that's, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so if it's not the Dyson sphere and if it's not radio transmission, uh, Jim, what do you think is the best way to search the, the, uh, the, the heavens for signs of, of life elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, I mean... First, you have to kind of assume that there's, if, if, if you're looking for intelligent life of the type of us or advanced, you don't really have a chance because if they want you to know about them, um, the, they'll let you, if, but they probably don't because they're so far advanced from us, they're well cloaked. Um, but if you just want to where there might be any kind of life, plant life, um, any kind of biological life that is, um, you know, not as advanced as us, for example, then biosignatures might be the way to do. So um, looking at uh, spectral signatures of, of planets to the extent that we can. Now, it's hard to do for these distant exosolar planets that we're discovering now, but um, as technology improves, we may be able to do that. Um, you know, but even locally, you know, our uh, Mars, there's a lot of fascination about Mars and whether or not there could be any life forms on there. And so we have probes there trying to figure that out. But you can imagine that, you know, if there were biological life, that we would be able to detect that with some spectral signatures from Mars that, um, 
you know, where organic materials are generating uh, certain uh, spectral signatures. We're not seeing that. So um, is that because our, our technology is not quite there yet, um, it's not sensitive enough, or it just plain isn't there? You know, time will tell. But to, to get outside of our solar system and see spectral signatures, biological uh, signatures from other planets, where, you know, we're, our technology is just not there yet. But that's probably the best chance that we're going to find something that's, uh, that's behind us. The chance that we find something that's ahead of us is only going to happen if they want us to know. That's, that's very interesting you mentioned that. Assuming that they, they are out there and that, let's say, they're visiting this planet and the UFO phenomena is real, people are seeing UFOs. This, you know, keeping in mind, we, we're only 30 years away, uh, perhaps, from, from achieving true invisibility, uh, cloaking uh, aircraft and so forth. That, that might explain why these uh, craft that people are seeing seem to flit in and out of, out of uh, the visible spectrum or out of reality, uh, in a sense. Jim Elvich is with us, holds a master's degree in electrical engineering, and you can follow his blog, Musings on the Nature of Reality, at his website, theuniversesolved.com. Uh, you, you said something in that same, or you wrote something in that same blog, which I think is a, is a, a nice leaping off point when we come back from our next break, which is upcoming. And let me just crib here from, from um, that blog. You say, we are at, in the beginning stages of a new facet of evolution as a species, not a physical one, but a consciousness-oriented one. Quantum mechanics has shown us that object, objective reality doesn't exist. Scientists are so frightened by the implications of this that they are, for the most part, in complete denial. But the con construct of reality is looking more and more like it is simply data. Now, as I say, we're heading into a break here shortly, Jim, but let's just begin that conversation now, and we'll pick it up on the other side. Quantum mechanics has shown us that objective reality doesn't exist. That's a pretty heady statement. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and this has a lot to do with something called the observer effect. So there have been um, experiments for a long time, these double-slit experiments that have baffled physicists. And basically what seems to be happening is that the, um, you know, whether or not a light or electrons or matter for that, that matter, uh, no pun intended, um, you know, molecules even, whether they behave like waves or particles depends on your sort of observational intent. So okay, I've got to jump in here. Sorry. Uh, okay. the, uh, the music is creeping up, and I'm a little behind here, so let's take a time on sure, no back. Problem. Jim Elvich, Mysteries of the Universe here on The Conspiracy Show, live from the Elite City Resort, Kalamata, Greece. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, Jim Elvich, scientific truth seeker, uh, blogger. Musings on the nature of reality can be uh, found at theuniversesolved.com. Uh, Jim, uh, sorry we had to jump in there. Sometimes I can't hear the music breaking up or uh, fading up, rather, from uh, 6,000 miles away. So uh, <laughs> we were discussing the, the very nature of reality and this idea that has scientists so frightened they don't even want to discuss it, and that is that quantum mechanics seems to be showing us that objective reality does not exist. So you were talking about particles and waves and how they tend to behave differently depending on whether or not they're being watched. Sure, yeah, there's this whole history of these experiments. And um, initially it, it looked like when you tried to measure the location of, uh, of a particle, 
that then you would de- actually it would start behaving like a particle. But then when you stopped trying to determine its location, it would behave like a wave. And this was really curious. So, you know, people started saying, well, maybe it's because of the measuring equipment that you're using to determine its location. So they would leave the measuring equipment um, there collecting, but not actually look at its results. And depending on whether you observe the results or not, um, it would behave differently. So in other words, what seems to be happening is that our consciousness, our the, the very fact that we ha- are observing something is causing reality to um, appear one way or another. So a lot of physicists over the years have kind of just, uh, you know, this is revulsion. The, you know, they, they've, they've come up with all kinds of theories as to what's going on and what's happening, and one by one those theories dis- disappear. Um, and I think the final nail in the coffin was... Uh, a study that was done in 2008 by a group in Vienna called Ikoki, I-Q-O-Q-I. And they did some very interesting experiments that showed to uh, an accuracy of like 80 orders of magnitude, I mean ridiculously accurate experiments, that reality really does not exist until you observe it. So this is, I mean, this is, you know, kind of an astounding result, and a lot of scientists who have built their, you know, research on the assumption that we live in a, you know, deterministic, materialistic type of word, world, they don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear the, the idea that consciousness may have something to do with, with creating reality. So they'll pursue some other kind of research and kind of put their head in the sand. But, you know, the guys who are really probing this and, and probing the, uh, you know, the, the fringe the fringes of this this idea are finding out that for sure um, objective reality really doesn't exist until consciousness gets involved and observes it and that actually makes perfect sense if if you think about our reality um, as a consciousness first type of system and not a matter first type of system um, and and I've been you know doing that and writing about that for for many years now um, but mostly from the standpoint of the idea that it could be a simulation. So if everything is just data, if matter ultimately is just data and everything that we interact with is really just data, our consciousness is um, interacting with that data and causing this reality to happen the, the, way, you know, the way we're seeing it. So, so what does that mean, Jim, in practical terms? If I leave a room, if I shut the door, does that mean that that room doesn't exist? It, it, it's a waveform that simply collapses the moment I look away? No, because you've already interacted with it. So if, if there was a... Uh, let's, let's think about it in, in terms of a, uh, a computer game, because I think it's a, a really good analogy. Let's say that you have created a computer game um, that is a one of these massively multiplayer online role-playing games, um, and it has a room in it that nobody has entered because there's no key available to go in the room. Well, from a programming standpoint, you don't need to design the inside of that room until somebody actually opens the door and walks in. In fact, it would be inefficient to design the inside of the room. It would, it would be inefficient for us to, um, you, you know, if, if you were thinking of our reality as being something that was designed, as I tend to do, it would be inefficient for 
that system to design the interior of every single cell down to the point where you could only see it with like an electron microscope. It doesn't need to until you actually get down to that level. So that's why these experiments are showing these results because we are getting down to the level of um, where it really matters, where, where you're actually you know, kind of looking at whether a particle goes here or a particle goes there. Now, as far as this, this room is concerned, um, once you uh, find a key, open the door, walk in the room, if the, if the system that is designing this, this room is efficient and doing this in a um, dynamic way, it'll very quickly you know, pull in its algorithms, design the room, and you look around and you see uh, you know, whatever, it, whatever it is that it's decided to design. Now, once you leave that room, there's no sense in it becoming nothing again. That would be inefficient. It's already been um, interacted with, so you, you see what I'm saying? I got it. Well, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. And uh, I want to delve further into this because you, you, you go further and talk about how consciousness controls the body. It doesn't emerge from it, which leads to the question, why do we need bodies? Back with Jim Elvich here on The Conspiracy Show, live from the Elite City Resort, Kalamata, Greece. And welcome back, live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, where we've been broadcasting for the last uh, three weeks and two more to go before we head on home. Jim Elvidge is with us, electrical engineer, scientific truth seeker, and blogger. And you can follow his musings on the nature of reality at theuniversesolved.com. And we're talking about the very nature of consciousness right now uh, and how consciousness uh, may not be merely a product uh, of, the, of the mind or the body that uh, you know, emerges from the body, but may in fact, it may be the other way around. Consciousness controls the body. Which then leads to the question, which you discuss in your blog, Jim, why then do we need bodies? <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is probably the, 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 big, the big thing that's going to happen, I think, in, in the 21st century is, is there will be uh, a realization that this is the case. And like everything, when, uh, we'll just take an example like uh, cold fusion. Cold fusion, when, when it was first um, discovered or reported on by Fleischmann and Pons, these guys were, you know, laughed out of the country, laughed out of the scientific community. And then 25 years later, um, CERN said that the effect that, the, that Fleischmann and Pons demonstrated was actually real and bears further study. And, of course, all along the way, um, you know, MIT and... Uh, you know, the United States Army and, and U.S. Department of Energy and all these other reputable uh, agencies and, and organizations have realized that this already exists. So this is, what, this is the pattern in science. When there's something revolutionary, a revolutionary thought, it takes a long time for, for people to kind of come to terms with it because they have to throw away old ideas, and that's, that's painful for experts to do. But the, the fact is there really isn't any evidence that consciousness emerges from the brain. The only evidence that, that is often pointed to is things like, well, when we put uh, probes in the brain and we stimulate the person by showing them pictures or, or particular words, various parts of the brain light up. 
and that that therefore proves that consciousness is coming out of the brain. Well, but that's that's actually ridiculous because you could do the same thing with your television set and and put you know an electrical probe in the television set and say, well, look, the programming is being generated by my TV set. It's not. It's coming from some somewhere else. So that doesn't really prove anything. But that's the only thing that um, the you know, materialistic reductionists can point to. On the other hand, there's tremendous amount of evidence that consciousness is separate from the body. And I, I believe I, I uh, have a blog post about that, or maybe uh, also in, in my book, that, um, it, you know, that, uh, that lists a lot of this evidence. I and mean, one, one place is near-death studies. So uh, cardiologist Pim von Lommel um, did 20 years of research uh, and support, uh, you know, has supporting scientific data on near-death experiences, um, and came to the conclusion that endless consciousness has always been uh, independent of the body. That there's no way to explain these things from a dying brain. Um, in addition, there are uh, studies of blind people who have had out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences that gained knowledge of facts during these these uh, experiences that they could have only learned through a faculty like vision, but they didn't have vision. Um, right. And then there were relevant eyewitnesses that corroborated their testimony. So they were able to travel outside of their body, see things, um, and report on those, and, and that evidence was corroborated. And there's just tons and tons and tons of research like this that, that once, once you take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to be totally open-minded and look at the evidence that supports the idea that consciousness is separate from the body and look at the evidence that, that, that says consciousness um, emerges from the body, you, you have to acknowledge that it's the, it's the former. There's just too much evidence. If this is true, and consciousness, if I'm following along correctly, then does that mean that consciousness creates matter? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, and now this, this gets into an area that's pretty speculative for me. Um, I, um, I tend to, to like some of the writings of uh, people like Tom Campbell and Stephen Kaufman who have, you know, really kind of from a, taken a scientific point of view on the nature of matter and consciousness and how this whole reality works. And, you know, I think what they will say is that matter um, really is just data. So we interact with that data um, kind of in the way we talked about before, where there's uh, a possibility of changing the way the data is arranged um, through our consciousness, then we will we'll change that, that data. Um, you know, and that, that explains the observer effect and explains all kinds of um, other things that, that have happened that we don't have traditional scientific explanations for, explains all the anomalies. In fact, all these quantum mechanics anomalies like uh, entanglement and observer effect and even there's some retrocausality, some, some studies that show that things happen um, that change things that happened in the past. Um, I, I might point your audience to a, there's a wiki, Wikipedia page called the Quantum Eraser uh, Experiment. And all those things, I, I've written um, pseudocode or, you know, kind of uh, a, a, a sort of an artificial programming language that explains every one of those. I could, I could program all of those effects um, programmatically. So that doesn't prove that 
this is all under program control. But if you have one theory that fits, that explains every single anomaly out there, and you don't have any other theory that explains more than two or three of them, then I think that theory, you know, bears uh, some investigation and bears some, some serious consideration. And I think more and more people are starting to do this. You're starting to see this creeping into um, popular culture and, and science articles now. Um, there, when I first started this, there were very few people who were talking about these kinds of things. Now there are a lot, and that's, that's, that's good evidence that we're heading in the right direction. And I can certainly see why the material reductionists are, are loath to discuss this, because it, it really uh, throws everything wide open in terms of the nature of reality, who we are, why we're here, how we got here, where we go. Uh, it, it's, it's all bets are off. It does. And, and, you know, there's even some, I don't know, some kind of bigger ideas with this. And, you know, I think, I mean, I love conspiracies like everybody else, and I, and I you know, like political intrigue and, and following what's going on in the world. But when you take a step back and you look at it and you think, well, you know, all these rises and falls of civilization and all this spying on each other and, you know, this, this country doing this to that country and all that, it's kind of like moving the deck chairs around on the, on the Titanic. You know, it's, it's creating a lot of, of noise at, at, a, at a, you know, kind of civilization holistic level. But the things that are really significant in terms of evolving humanity are things like what India did recently, and, and they acknowledge that dolphins are non-human people. So, therefore, you know, dolphins should be treated um, exactly as we would treat humans and given the same rights. Uh, there are four countries now that have done this, and I think that's those kinds of things are actually good signs that our humanity is evolving. Um, you know, not that we're we're able to you know crush some other country in a war. Exactly. No, and that's why we we love to talk about those things as well, and that's why we have people like you to come on the program because we almost, it's like we need a salve or a, a salve or a. Uh, um, we need to cleanse our palate from all of this negativity and noise, as you say, and, and uh, you come bearing good news. Uh, I want to talk, just, we have a few minutes left. In the time that remains, another recent blog, I guess this goes back to the spring, you, everyone is uh, talking about 3D printers, very excited that this is the new uh, industrial revolution, or it's going to make the industrial revolution look like it was nothing. The idea that you can have essentially a printer, uh, and it's desktop manufacturing. You wrote a blog about a 3D-printed robot that can actually assemble itself. Talk to me about that for a few moments. Yeah, this is some crazy stuff that, that's going on in the 3D printing world. You know, it's, it's kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, and and almost every month you read something else that can be done with 3D printers is just amazing. So what this one is is a... Um, uh, this is Harvard and MIT created this 3D printed um, device. Now, imagine it comes out of a printer and it's flat, um, and it really it can almost assemble itself. So it's not quite self-assembling yet. But what what ha a human has to plug in the power and the uh, and the motor to it. But once it does that, it's made of materials, and these materials are 
uh, generated by the 3D printer. It's like you, you pour them in the 3D printer and you give it the instructions on where to apply the materials. They're called polymers or memory polymers that that um, they bend in certain ways. So they have these predefined hinges that cause the, the polymers, once you plug them in, to actually automatically bend and form um, a structure. And it forms something like an inchworm that can then walk around. So it's it's 3D printed robot that can almost assemble itself. Now, you know, next generation, um, maybe a robot can, uh, you know, can, can, can put the battery and the motor in there, or these, they'll have pre-assembled batteries and motors so they can actually assemble themselves when they come out of the printer and get up and walk away. You know, and that's kind of scary sounding in a way. Um, yeah, I'll say. But, but then also, like, one step beyond that is, you know, could one of these things um, come out of the 3D printer, get up and walk away, and then go and push the button on the printer and create another one and, you know, basically continue, continue with self-replication. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is getting to be pretty wild stuff, <laughs> and it's happening fast. A bit of a Pandora's box, I'd say. It is, you know, and it's one of those things like every technology we have, nuclear technology and uh, nanotech and cloning and all these things come with dangers if they're, if they're used incorrectly uh, or, or used in a way that um, can, you know, create a, you know, some negative aspect to, to the technology, they will. So somebody has to be either putting fail-safes in or, you know, developing, it's like, you know, that whole war with viruses on your computer and antiviral software, um, it seems to me that the antivirus guys have pretty much won. I, you know, no, don't know very many people that get viruses anymore, um, knock on wood. But, you know, this, this seems to be a pattern that we have technologies that can be exploited for, for good or bad, and there are a few people that exploit them for bad, and then there are more people that tend to exploit them for, for good, uh, ostensibly good purposes, and, and they usually win out. So let's hope that that happens with 3D technology, too. Kim Elvich, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard, and enjoy your time in Greece. It was a Will very do. clean connection. It was uh, great being on the show again. Always a pleasure. Jim Elvidge, theuniverselved.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. The website, of course, www.richardserrett.com. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. Yasas from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. I uh, was walking through some olive groves um, last day. Uh, after we finished touring uh, ancient Messinia, uh, some amazing uh, ancient Greek ruins there. And uh, the sound of the cicadas was deafening. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the cicadas. Uh, we have, I don't know what we call them in Canada. I guess they're called cicadas. But here, uh, they, they refer to them as zizika. And it's, it's one of those sounds that's synonymous with summer in Greece. They live in the trees, you know, the olive trees especially. Uh, they're, uh, I guess, about the size of a grasshopper. They're not much to look at. They're not, they're not very attractive, but their wings are beautiful, lacy, uh, um, colorful uh, wings. And uh, so we're standing under this olive tree for some shade as we're coming back from the Messinian ruins. 
and we could bear we could barely hear each other over the sound of these uh, of these cicada. Uh, anyway, it is uh, for some, I guess, it's kind of a nuisance. For others, it's just beautiful music, and you can tell the temperature apparently by the cicadas. Uh, the louder they are, the hotter it is, and they were pretty loud yesterday. So that'll give you an idea uh, how hot it was. In any event, uh, enjoying our stay here in, uh, in Greece immensely and uh, coming to you, as I say, live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, just steps from the Messinian Bay. And as I look out the window here, uh, I see the uh, Tahito Mountains, uh, just a stone's throw from the, uh, the resort. So you've got the mountains, you've got the sea. What more can you ask? Last night, I was uh, floating on my back, my, sort of my evening ritual, after I check uh, my email at the, uh, the Internet Cafe, right on the beach, went in for a, a dip, floated on my back, and then my nephew, my boys, and I, still in our bathing suits and our water shoes, just walked down the, the uh, boardwalk to a, uh, a restaurant, one of countless restaurants uh, along the beach, and had some of the most amazing octopus uh, that I've had in quite some time. And you're probably familiar with uh, people like uh, Dr. Oz on the Oprah Winfrey uh, Network, and he extols the virtues of the Mediterranean diet. And one of the, the healthy foods is octopus and, of course, olive oil, which uh, everything here is, uh, is uh, dripping with olive oil. And oregano, of course, uh, is found in abundance here. And so I thought, well... Who better to talk about the uh, the virtues of things like oregano and other foods that have healing properties, really, than an old friend of the program? And that, of course, would be Dr. Cassingram. He's uh, the author of dozens of books on health and wellness, including The uh, Miracle of Wild Oregano, which we're going to talk about over the next hour. The Cure is in the Cupboard, Supermarket Remedies, How to Eat Right, Live Longer, and The Body-Shaped Diet. He's a popular speaker, prolific author on the topic of natural health. He's been interviewed on more than 5,000 TV radio programs throughout the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., and he's a favorite of ours here on The Conspiracy Show. Dr. Cass Ingram, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm doing uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, how, how have you been doing? Well, you can imagine, I'm, I'm sitting here in Greece enjoying uh, everything that it has to offer, especially the food, and I thought, I've I got to have Cass on while I'm down here because, you know, you're Mr. Oregano. Yeah. Well, look, uh, the, the incidence of certain diseases in Greece and Turkey, uh, Lebanon, uh, Palestine, what's left of that, all of those areas, it's clearly different than what we have in the United States and Canada and and uh, and of course Giovinici did his study in Harvard thinking that it was lycopene in pizza um and and tomato based products that protected against prostate cancer but now we think that we know uh that instead it's the oregano <laughs> as they say in Greece uh so so I'm quite convinced that you know this recent study I know you wanted to interview me about that our work uh, is really like a cure for prostate disorders, including prostate cancer, from the cases that I've, you know, I've, I've dealt with. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. It's a, well, let's talk about this, this Long Island University study that, that's uh, headed up by a team of researchers. Tell me more. Well, primarily it's drug company sponsored because they're using basically like a chemical form of oregano, but even the chemical form 
shocked them as to what the results were to such a degree that they start talking about it like a, like it's a cure. And, you know, the medical profession and the research community doesn't talk cure that often with a natural compound. What they discovered was that if you take human cancer cell lines for prostate cancer and you, you put them in a cell broth or whatever, and you add the, you know, uh, carvacrol, which is one of the ingredients of oregano, you add that, uh, and it kills 99.9% of the cancer cells, and they, they don't regrow, they're, they're just gone, they're wiped out uh, through programming the cell to self-destruct. Well, we don't really need to spend $8 billion and close both of our eyes and do a double-blind study, because you have the Bible, for example, which which, and I'm not a scriptural expert, but it, I'm an expert on oregano, and it says you should purge yourself, basically, attributed to David. And it's with hyssop, but hyssop is from Aesop, and, which is Greek, and Aesop is from Hebrew, which is Esop. And Esop means wild oregano in, in Hebrew. So it's, wow. it's, it's a purge, you know. Um, uh, the Prophet Muhammad said it's, it cures colds. We know it does, uh, and, and Ronnie knows. Jesus Christ, in some of the apocryphal scriptures, apparently uh, saying that hot ointments are what you need. Well, the heat in that era, in, emulsified into fat, would have been the oregano, because that's what grows over there, you know, in, in that whole area. Um, it's like a weed. So they're, they're studying the chemical compound in oregano at, uh, at uh, Long Island University, but you've been working with wild oregano extracts in the treatment of, of various diseases. I've been Tell using... Tell me about some of your, your case histories. Yeah, I've been using the crude, unprocessed whole extract, the wild kind, but not the commercial kind that's now so many fake brands in, in Canada and elsewhere uh, in the United States, but the original mountainous material from Turkey and Greece, extracted with steam and put into olive oil to make oil of oregano, you know, the oregano we, you and I both take. Uh, and then also the juice of oregano, which is very novel, and I'll explain that, and the whole crude herb, the oregamax, which is the village formula of oregano and Rus coriorea, which are both Mediterranean spices. What our uh, cases are, are human cases, not just cell culture, before and after CAT scans, which started out with prostatitis. I mean, the reason I got into this was, you know, I wrote the book, The Cures in the Cupboard, and I started to codify the case histories, and one of the case histories was a guy who had terrible prostatitis. He had it on and on for, off for years. He just took the oil of oregano, the P73, under the tongue, three or four drops twice a day, and he, he purged his, his prostatitis, which was probably like an infection. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I had these cases of benign prostatic hypertrophy, and the doctor came back and said, you do not have a hypertrophic prostate anymore since you've been taking the oregano oil. And the coup de dar was, was that we had a case of prostate cancer, and we had the CAT scan, and it's about the size of a hazelnut, and then two months after a combination of this oregamax, this triage, this oil of oregano, the juice of oregano, the, the prostate cancer, I mean, we did the CAT scan again, and it was just a piece of scar tissue. The, the hazelnut was gone. It, it ate the stupid cancer out. Wow. So the active chemical in oregano 
that they're studying at Long Island University. I'm, I'm guessing that the drug companies are going to, tr if this is successful, they're going to try and synthesize this, and, and rather than have, uh, a, you know, a, a botanical uh, drug, they'll end right. up with a, with, a, with a chemical version of that. Well, this is correct. It is effective. Well, it's not as effective because we did the study at Georgetown University where we took Sigma Chemicals synthetic carvacrol and we found and, and compared it in mice, infected the mice with candida yeast, and it was 50% uh, as effective as the whole crude P73 oil of oregano with all of the divine, you know, interactions of 40 different ingredients versus one ingredient which is why I'm against all these people with their carvacrol wars. I have 80%, I have 70%, I have 90%. You measure it and you find out none of them are speaking the truth. We need to get back to just using, just like we've talked about, how God made it, unaltered. That's why I'm healthy. That's why I've helped so many people, because I, you know, I want to keep whatever is found in nature in its whole form. I don't understand it. Who can understand what's in a piece of bread? Nobody even understands what's in honey. In, in royal jelly, for example, they still can't break the code. They, five to seven percent of the active ingredients are unknown. One day they're going to find a new B vitamin they didn't know about. We don't know what's in anything. We know a few teeny things, one percent. So, so you know, man is stupid in that respect. Even when we synthetic, synthesize vitamins, we take coal tar, which is a carcinogen, or we take petrol, like hexane, uh, gasoline, and we synthesize food dyes and, and vitamins from, from poison. <laughs> right. If, if I'm at the restaurant and I'm taking oregano on my village salad, my tomato salad, which is sort of my uh, daily routine here, Am I getting the benefits of, of that anti-cancer fighting Yes, you are, because ingredient? the Venucci study showed that even commercial oregano, and you're getting the pure kind there in Greece, hopefully, yes. um, it was, was, was effective in preventing prostate cancer. Look, in, if, you, if you study the incidence of prostate cancer in Turkey and Greece, it's considerably lower. Uh, and, of course, they... The oregano grows there in the mountains, and they're using it in so many different foods. But, uh, but you know, obviously, if you really want to take on someone who has it, they've got the prostatitis, they've got the prostate uh, hypertrophy, they've got the carcinoma. You need the extract, you know. Uh, you really should be taking a concentrate to obliterate the problem. Case history. How about this one? How about stage four prostate cancer, inoperable, guy's going to die. Uh, doctor doesn't know what to do. He says it's the worst hardened prostate he's seen in years. The guy Let me just uh, jump in here, uh, Cass, because we've got to take a time out. We'll, uh, we'll come back to that case history on the other side. The Conspiracy Show broadcasting live from the beautiful Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata. Dr. Cass Ingram talking about wild oregano right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. And I uh, failed to mention off the top, we have a new affiliate. Very proud to welcome WCRA AM 1090 in Springfield, Illinois. So to all the, uh, the folks at WCRA AM 1090, their news talk leader, welcome. Uh, great to have you part of the uh, Conspiracy Show family here. Uh, 
Dr. Cass Ingram is with us uh, in and around Chicago, not too far from Springfield, I believe. And he's here to talk about the seemingly miraculous uh, properties associated with wild oregano. And of course, I'm getting plenty of wild oregano here uh, in Kalamata. And of course, we're all familiar with um, oregano as you know, sprinkling it on, on pizza and so forth. Uh, and we've even um, become familiar, thanks to Dr. Ingram over the years, about its uh, ability to combat uh, uh, well, its use as a powerful antioxidant and a germ killer. But now we're hearing from a team of researchers at Long Island University a new role for this fragrance spice, a weapon in the fight against prostate cancer. Uh, so, Dr. Ingram, you were telling us about this uh, case history of a, a gentleman who had a, uh, a, a tumor in his prostate. I think you said it was about the size of a hazelnut. Tell yeah, this is a that. different one. This is worse. This is an extension. Uh, the hazelnut guy is cured. He's finished. Ah. This guy, um, nobody knew what to do with him. But, you see, he's from Louisiana. He loves sugar. He's in a moist environment. And he's got toenail fungus and, and fingernail fungus. And so what I told him is, look, you're not going to take three to five drops of the oil and knock this thing out. You've got to hit it hard. You've got to clear all that fungus. The fungus is trapped up in your prostate. You know, with a woman, she's got the vaginal, so she knows if she's got an itch or drainage. The man's got it's gonna, the membranes are stuck inside the, inside the prostate. They don't know what's going on. Uh, and so, so I, I put him on like 300 drops of the Super Strength P73 material, which is the edible kind. You can put, you can use huge doses of that. You can't use huge doses of these off-brands. So, uh, and then, you know, gave him the juice of oregano and, and about 25 Oregamax a day. Now, six months later, now he's taking a few other things, all herbal. Six months later, he's, all, he's also taking the combination of oregano and, pro, and pumpkin seed oil concentrate. I'll talk to you about that later. The doctor goes in, and instead of feeling a hard, uh, you know, gnarly prostate that seems to be attached by extension into the rest of the, you know, areas, he gets something that's smooth and compresses. The guy says, hey, this is like, I mean, this is impossible, you know. He was so astonished he he fell right into it and said it's got to be the oregano and i'm going to write up you know write this into a book or publish it because there's no way we could expect that uh reversal of your extent of prost but you see herein lies the hoax and therefore your show when warburg uh, otto warburg said that, you know, there's not enough oxygen in the cancer, and so it's an anaerobic tissue. But he also found fungus as a co-operative uh, with the cancer. So you've got the cancer or the fungus or the fungus or the cancer. The oregano takes out the fungus. You know, if you have a, an insect and it's got bacteria and it's got, and you kill the bacteria, the, the insect will die because it's dependent on those insects. Human being can withstand that better. Um, but the oregano, when it, when it kills the fungus, the cancer involutes, it, it self-destructs. And that's what happened with this guy. It's a miracle, you know. 
we talked about prostate cancer, but what other um, what other ailments have you seen success with when when treating it with Tongue the wild cancer, oregano extract? You know, just super strength oregano oil, juice of oregano um, for skin cancer, topically for melanoma. I'm just giving. I, mean, I want to give out the big ones, you know, because a little bit of shock therapy here, leukemia, feline leukemia, uh, you know, um, uh, breast cancer, especially when adding in the juice, and we've got someone with inflammatory breast cancer, she reversed it completely. Um, I mean, these people are writing books. The doctor's writing a book, he says. The woman on the breast cancer is writing a book. Tell, try to tell her story. Lyme disease, West Nile, SARS. Summer flu, summer cough, sinusitis, bronchitis, because they're fungal. Some cases of eczema. And uh, occasionally you'll get a psoriatic where the oregano in high enough doses, especially if you add in the oregoresp and oregamax, will be rooted out. And, I mean, these are some of the big, big ones that would shock people to know that the one herb by itself would do all of that. Yeah. Well, I've got an interesting story. Um, while we've been here, uh, my twin boys are in the water about four hours a day. And one night, Zachary was complaining about uh, uh, an earache, really bad earache. And I tried, I didn't, I didn't bring any children's Tylenol or anything like that. I, I tried putting a warm washcloth on his ear and nothing was working. And uh, I was lying down with, in bed with him and he was really uncomfortable. And uh, so all I had was this tomato salad, uh, and I thought, I'll take a little bit of the, uh, the olive oil, and it had oregano mixed in it, and I put it on the stove, and I just warmed it, and I took a, a cotton swab, and I dipped it in the, um, the oil and oregano um, juice, I guess, yeah. and I just put it down into the canal of his ear gently, just a few drops, and after about an hour, he fell asleep, <laughs> woke up the next day, no earache. Now, I don't know if it was because he had water in his ear and the oil displaced yes. the water or what that was. Well, the water in the ear but the, could develop some pathogens and parasites, different things in the water, and the ear is vulnerable. So uh, what a good idea to maybe give them a little oil of oregano before they swim and after or whatever, um, just as prevention. You know, People always want to know when you talk about cures and so forth, and that's, you know, obviously very controversial when you talk about cures. They want to know, okay, has this been written up in peer-reviewed journals? We know that the, the Long Island University research, they're working with the chemical ingredients, but in terms of the, the herbs themselves, the wild herbs, have these been documented in peer-reviewed journals? Well, no, because who's going to do it? You know, it's uh, we. I'm, we've done some peer-reviewed journal work, uh, published about seven or eight studies, which are significant, uh, and we're working on a human trial of forty patients with toenail fungus. So, yeah, I mean, but you're, and there have been I don't know four or five hundred studies published on oregano oil uh, in treatment of candida and the treatment of of uh, you know sort of cold, flu, bronchial, but but those are expensive. Uh, they usually are subsidized. They're on the basis of a maybe a two, three billion dollar drug. Who's going to do it? 
and it's a waste of money. We have the ethnobotanical use. These are grass substances that we're talking about tonight, oregano, pumpkin seed oil. They're foods. It's nice to do a bit of a clinical trial. You know, it might cost 50000 bucks, and you can show and demonstrate with 40 patients the efficacy. Uh, those are good, but no, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Who's going to be convinced? And you can't get any approval from the medical profession anyway. Well, because there's no, there's no, there's no payoff for the drug companies, I guess, because they're not going to be producing a drug out of a natural herbal product. No way. I mean, they, what that. they do is they, they've been buying up herbal companies. Uh, and one wonders what the quality then is when you've got a privately owned thing and it goes into the hands of an abbot or, uh, you know, sharing plow or whatever it is. So, uh, so it's really two diametrically opposed things. What God makes and what man makes. Drugs are made, are man-made. Uh, drugs are, as you know, the number one cause of fatality. If you add the Canadian fatalities to the American fatalities, and then you look at heart disease, Drug therapy supersedes heart disease as the number one cause of fatality because, look, you've got the antibiotic-resistant germs that which take out about 350,000 Canadians and Americans every year. We're just talking about Canadians and Americans because you're based there. Uh, you have properly used drugs in hospitals which take out about 150,000 a year. Dead. I'm talking about killing. The drug samples... Uh, that are given in, in other drugs that are given in a doctor's office or pharmacy take out another twenty five fifty thousand a year. You, you've already got more there than than in heart disease. It's so, amazing. So it's amazing. there's a big difference. Has anybody died in the last fifty thousand years from oregano or pumpkin seed extract? <laughs> they, instead, they live in they're living. Not unless, because, the, not unless the uh, I don't know uh, they tripped and fell on the oregano bush or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> they probably, then they would auto-immunize themselves from any infection. There you go. Dr. Cass Ingram is with us. Why don't we open up the phone lines uh, and uh, people have uh, questions, comments, uh, not only about oregano, but of course you've written uh, some amazing books, not only The Miracle of Wild Oregano, but The Cures in the Cupboard, Supermarket Remedies. So let's, let's open up the phone lines and talk I'm, about foods that heal. I'm not uh, sure I also to talk about my medical things like Boston hoax and, and Sandy hoax. So if they want to talk about that, I'm happy to because as a medical doctor, I'm analyzing all this corruption, you know, as well as medical disasters. No. Yeah, let's focus on the. Uh, I, I really like to focus on the uh, the, the, the medical, foods that yeah. the foods that cure. As we're talking about oregano here tonight, so Tim Spreen back in studio. Uh, open up those phone lines, questions and comments for Dr. Cass Ingram. Uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, uh, olive oil as well? Olive oil would be great. Olive oil. Olive oil would be antioxidant. If you took it daily, you see, uh, or even every other day. The data shows that people who regularly consume olive oil live quite a bit longer. In fact, the, the most centenarians, besides, I think Okinawa maybe, but certainly Crete is, is probably higher, uh, and it's the number one consume olive oil in the world. So the more olive oil that we consume, because what happens is the oleic acid acts as a fuel for the heart. Plus, it has antioxidants. You know? So, olive oil, oregano. Um, 
I was, I was talking about the joint as octopus, uh, but the Mediterranean diet is is uh, just wonderful. I mean, for your health. Think about this octopus and squid and all these things and tripe and all the stuff that we never eat. Um, the omega threes are very rich in the squid and the octopus. The the olive oil provides the monounsaturates. The, there's you know then they they do eat some saturates. Saturates are important as fuel for the cardiac muscle and for the kidneys. Uh, they don't think about that they're going to die if they have two eggs a day. Uh, if they uh, have pure fat from the intestines or from if they eat liver, if they eat things that are rich in cholesterol. The Italian, the Greek, the Turk, the Lebanese, the what have you, they're not calculating. Uh, you know what it could do to our them. It's part of their tradition. Yeah. Well, there's this whole new thinking now that cholesterol may not be the culprit in, in heart disease. It, it, that it's all about inflammation. What causes the inflammation? First, you got the cholesterol thing, and you have to talk about that because when you know people have heart attacks, it's more common for someone to have a heart attack when they have a low blood cholesterol than a high. So a person who has a blood cholesterol that's very low, we call it 140, 150, 120, they're the, they're the, they're the time bomb for a heart attack, not the person with 220. Uh, so that's the first question. That's if cholesterol is used as, as a wax to seal the arteries. That's why they, they've misconstrued it. When the artery is damaged, um, it's like carnauba wax. It goes, the body goes and patches it with cholesterol. Isn't that interesting? Who would have ever thought? It is. I mean, this, this is totally rethinking everything that we thought we knew about heart disease, if this is the case. Yeah, and you're right. There's no real evidence that, that a bit of a high cholesterol leads to a heart attack. Uh, the inflammation thing, though, can raise the cholesterol level because then the body's again trying to repair cells. So it's 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 auto-synthesizing. You know, your liver makes the equivalent of two dozen eggs worth of cholesterol every day. Oh my! <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it would be foolish to to try to restrict your egg intake as a as a kind of therapy. You're going to restrict. You might want to tell your liver to quit making cholesterol then. You know. Okay, Dr. Cass, we'll take a time out back with more in a moment as we talk about foods that cure here in the Conspiracy Show live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata. Coming at you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Uh, Dr. Cass Ingram on the line, the author of over a dozen books on health and wellness, including The Miracle of Wild Oregano, The Cures in the Cupboard, Supermarket Remedies, How to Eat Right and Live Longer. We've been talking about uh, oregano, a study at the University of Long Island, a team of researchers, um, hold out uh, great promise that uh, one of the chemical compounds in oregano uh, may, in fact, combat prostate cancer. Uh, but we're talking about other foods as well, other foods that heal. I know that you're very big on wild berries. Uh, um, very much so, yeah, very much so. There was a study done in um, which they took, again, cancer cells, and, and then they got the cancer cells growing and cooking. Then they added organic, I, I believe it was organic berry extract. This is blackberries. Uh, and it didn't do anything. You know, you would have thought with all the flavonoids and elagic acid and all that, it didn't do anything at all. But when they added wild blackberries, it obliterated the cancer cells. 
So you what know, is it about we, the, it, it, the wild versus the farmed variety? Yeah, exactly. I call it the divine energy or the divine uh, dance of Brownian motion and high uh, photonic energy and also the soil of like the boreal forest in Canada, for example, or the mountains of Turkey, where there's nobody messing with that soil. So we don't understand the natural soil mechanics. What we do is we plow it under. <laughs> right, right. And nature doesn't plow anything under, you know, it just leaves it there. And, and so uh, what I would say Ed, is that if we could find anything wild, let's say we want turmeric, we want oregano, we want berries, we want a berry extract, or we want to treat a disease, and we know that dandelion is good for that. Well, are we going to get any benefit from a ground-up commercial dandelion, dried dandelion in a, in a capsule? No. We'd have to make an extract of the wild dandelion, the wild dandelion root. You know, we had a cat. The cat uh, was listless and just, you know, and, and, and not having good bowel movements and went seven days without bowel. So we, we gave her a product called Dandomax, and Dandomax is wild Canadian uh, dandelion root and leaf in the raw, and then we mixed it in the cat's food, and the cat's like a whole, you know, it's 19 years old, but it's like a whole other creature. Wow. Dandelion, you know, and you just grind the leaves and the, and the petals and everything? Right well, no, this is, this is an actual health food store product, okay. Dandomax. This is an extract. But how is it uh, Where the pickers pick the wild dandelions and, and no, this is a traditional food in, in Greece. You know, dandelion originates from Greece and Turkey. That's where it was brought here. It's right, not an right. original to the United States or Canada. No, they, yeah, the, all these greens, they cook up and they call it horta. Yeah, yeah. But nobody in the United States uses it, so we get congested. We don't have anything to activate the liver. You know, these are the waxes. These are, the, these are they're waxes, like cholesterol. In the dandelion, you know, when you, and, and the resins, you know, you snap a dandelion leaf and you see that white, the milk, yes. you see, that's medicine. It's also anti-wart. You can put it on a wart. But, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, if, and, and the root in the fall or in the uh, early spring has the medicine in it uh, for decongesting the liver, for improving the bowel. And if you have constipation, it's finished with this stuff. That's how powerful. It's amazing. That, yeah. So much of this knowledge has been uh, lost to us. I guess you know the Native Americans and Native Canadians knew about this. I'm well, they Native Canadians were the ones who introduced me to chaga, and now uh, there's a revolution uh, of interest in chaga. So yeah, we talked so about that's that's why that's why I say the double the, This is this fungus uh, that seems to grow on, the, on on birch trees up in the boreal forest. Right, and nobody knows for sure what it is. It's kind of like a fungus, kind of like a tumor on the birch tree. Uh, if the birch tree dies, the chaga dies. If the chaga dies, sometimes the birch tree will die. It's a symbiote, and that, there's nothing better than chaga for physical strength and stamina, and for getting more out of the day getting more out of your existence. But then, you know, Aboriginal brothers, uh, God bless them, they said, look, you know, have you ever heard of Chaga? I was way up in Manitoba about 10 years ago. I never heard of it. 
you know, he said it grows on a birch tree. I said, what birch tree? I mean, I've seen thousands of birch trees. So, you know, these are things that we just pass by. And what he told me is that it cures cancer. So that's why I didn't really do much with it, because it's like, how are you going to do that in the United States without getting arrested? <laughs> right. Indeed, after you're treading on uh, dangerous territory there. You know, so I didn't, but when I, when I got burnt out from writing so many books and doing so, traveling, doing lecturing, and just kind of not getting much out of my body or my mind, uh, I, I brewed up some of the chaga. I was waking up at 11 o'clock every morning. I didn't like that. I brewed up the chaga, I drank it, and I woke up at 4.30 in the morning looking for something to do around the house. <laughs> Organizer's sock drawers. Dr. Cass Ingram stays with us. We'll be back on the other side, broadcasting live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Stay with us. Broadcasting live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, where the sun is uh, up and over the mountains and shimmering on the um, beautiful Messinian Bay. Looks like another great day here. Hope you're having a great day as well. Uh, Dr. Cass Ingram stays with us, author of over a dozen books on health and wellness, including The Miracle of Wild Oregano, which we, uh, we spent the first half of the program uh, discussing. And uh, also, The Cures in the Cupboard, Supermarket Remedies, How to Eat Right and Live Longer. Got an email here from Andrew, uh, Dr. Cass, because you yeah. mentioned turmeric. He wants to know more about turmeric. Yeah, turmeric is mainly for anti-inflammatory. Uh, that's it. I mean, that's the kingpin value of it. But the, the the corollary is a reduction in the in the risk for Alzheimer's disease. This is a nice uh, side effect. I'm interested in turmeric, wild turmeric, commercial turmeric, and turmeric uh, uh, capsules or curcumin capsules are extracted with hexane. So I have never used those. To me... What does that mean, hexane? Well, hexane is gasoline, basically. It's oh. similar. I'm, if, if, if I told you I got a nice dandelion salad, but I want to extract the ingredients out of it, I'm soaking it in gasoline, then I'll drive that off with, with heat. Would you eat the residue? Not a chance. You know, so, so what I tried to do was uh, hunt wild turmeric, and I found it about, I guess, three years ago. So before I tell him about what turmeric does, he needs to know the best quality. And, and so they extracted it with carbon dioxide, you know, supercritical extraction, and with steam. And now there's a product called Turmerol at the Healthy Planet and I think some nature source, whatever it is. Turmerol is 100% wild turmeric case history. There was a woman with sciatica. You know, sciatica is miserable. Yes, indeed. And sometimes you can, even if you try to treat it with osteopathy or chiropractic attraction, nothing. It just... So, so she took this turmeric and it cured her sciatica. So she told the whole universe about it. So, so I like real turmeric, even if it was just organic turmeric ground up in a capsule. That or turmeric for for in, intractable pain issues like sciatica, like uh, lumbar spine issues, spinal stenosis, certainly even ruptured intervertebral disc, along with whatever medical care is you know being done, uh, back pain itself, neuropathy, but then also Alzheimer's prevention and treatment. Uh, Inflammation so in general, exciting. arthritis, yeah. yeah. 
Alzheimer's treatment and prevention. Right now, See, there's a big this must be this must have been written up in the journals. I'm sorry. This must have been written up in the journals. It talking is talking about Alzheimer's. Oh, it is. This is. I mean, the the data is quite compelling. Anybody could do a search: Alzheimer's scientific studies, turmeric, uh, curcumin. And, uh, you know, even the solvent-extracted form is, is working. But, I mean, you know, then you get the solvents, too. What about uh, the other herbs and spices, like cinnamon? Well, cinnamon's fantastic, though. How about, did we, nobody even paid any attention why all the traditional people would put cinnamon with oatmeal or buns or cakes. It's anti-carbohydrate. It's, an, it's a glycemic regulator. All these decades, nobody paid Anti-diabetic. Anti-hypoglycemic, uh, um, you know. It's, so if you're trying to lose weight, you should take cinnamon? Cinnamon will help. Not as much as hot spices. I mean, really hot spices like mustard. You want to lose weight, then you eat a lot of mustard. You eat a lot of cayenne, you know, hot spices. How do you want work? Yeah. Well, it increases the metabolic rate by 35%. You're going to burn weight. Now, we're it's not a dramatic about, thing. You know, French mustard that you put on your hot dog. We're talking about, again, the, 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 the mustard uh, spice, the extract. The, well, no, you could use the mustard, uh, ideally the, the crude form, you know, with the little specks of mustard seeds, or horseradish mustard, or English mustard, sure, yellow mustard with horseradish. It's, you know how you feel when you eat mustard. You get heat. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, so, so, I mean, in, in for every disease, there's a natural cure. Yeah? Uh, maybe it's diatomaceous earth. Maybe it's clay. There's something in nature. Maybe it's an herb. Maybe it's uh, a special uh, mineral water somewhere. Maybe it's, you know, spitting in mud and putting it on the eyes like, you know, Christ Jesus. I mean, the mud has a curative property. Mud, clay... Is it one of the cures for blindness? You know. Well, I, I know well, we know the story from the, the Bible, but what? Uh, tell me more about that. Well, it, clay is astringent, so if okay. the blindness is due to trachoma, which it was co the most common cause in the Middle East and in that area, which is a chlamydia, you see. And if they put the mud on within seconds, it would it would draw out all the chlamydia, and cure it. Within, you know, it's, that, it's very powerful within whatever time. Um, so Christ was quite the natural physician. He must have been. And, of course, you know, that was common in that era. You know, the three wise men were wise. What did they have? They had frankincense and time. And what, that time was oregano, not time. Nonsense. But, uh, so, I mean, I don't care what you do. I mean, I know from my own experience that anything, an injury a stupid cancer, uh, a, a pain, if we could match the right herb or earth product or whatever to that disease, then you could, uh, you could eradicate that. You could get your health back. Just a few minutes left, uh, Cass. Walk us through, in supermarket remedies, uh, some common things that you could find on the shelves in a supermarket. We've talked about quite a few of them, but give us some more, some, some remedies from this. Well, one of them is ginger, which is great for nausea or upset stomach or nausea of pregnancy, and also it's very, very good inflammation. So slice ginger root into the tea with your turmeric for your shoulder pain, for your arthritis. Uh, we talk about grapefruit. Grapefruit's fantastic. It lowers cholesterol if you need to do that. 
it's uh, for dieting. Uh, it's got the pectin. It's got vitamin C. I talk about squash in there. I'm a huge fan of squash. It's low carbohydrate, high in beta carotene. Apricots. Apricots help soften. I mean, have beta carotene. It's good for the skin. You know, supermarket remedies is a book everybody should have, I suppose, on their shelf so they could flip through the 55 foods that are in there. Even I talk about beef. Now we have range-fed beef, which is very healthy, uh, and that beef is also, you know, it's got the conjugated linoleic acid in it, which actually increases burning of fat. Um, so it's a bit of an unusual book. It's not a vegetarian or vegan book. It's, a, it's, it's whatever food, whether meat, egg, uh, yogurt, or particularly the emphasis in the book, of course, is vegetables and fruits and nuts and seeds, but all of it, whatever its health benefit is, you're going to learn about that. And, yeah, it, you're not yeah. big on the, ve- the vegan or vegetarian diet, are you? I mean, you believe in, in, in whole foods, butter. Well, and, all and, the and, primitives ate uh, a wide range of foods, and the longevity societies ate animal foods. There's no exception to that, by the way. So why would I want to attach myself to a fad? Now, if you need to be a vegan to clean out your body for cancer for a while, but not forever, that's understandable. Uh, Because at that point when you have cancer, the iron in red meat is a carcinogen. So I'm not going to, you know, attack the vegans. It's just from a nutritional point of view, it's an incomplete diet. So I don't, I can't recommend that kind of a diet. Interesting. And how how do you feel about uh, these, these, um, uh, you know, people who purge their uh, their bodies. They, uh, for example, I went on one of these diets for five days where you you, uh, you chop up uh, kale and uh, and coconut oil and you put that in a blender with That's lemon good. and. Yeah, all of that kind of thing is good, and fasting is good. You know, right now you've got the month of Ramadan. People are fasting; it's resting the gut. Uh, there's some things we should be doing more regularly. We should do a juice fast uh, on occasion. We should uh, load up on fruit in the summer. Uh, very important for summer food. We should, we should, as we get older, cut back on the consumption of meat. We don't need the protein as much. Um, it's harder to digest as well. Yeah, well, um, actually it's harder to digest nuts and seeds and... Um, and legumes than it is to digest meat, except pork, yeah, right. of course. Um, Interesting. We, we, sh- we, we, as a, we as a society should aggressively obliterate the, I mean, the, the consumption of GMOs. We should rigidly look at what a GMO is and not put our money into it, boycott it by our pocketbook. Well, here in uh, Europe, they've basically told Monsanto to get out. Well, Europe has been trying to get rid of them for quite some time. And then the latest study in France, then that's the end of Monsanto. You know, it, let me just divert. Europe got rid of the backscatter machine, which I've been against because there's a carcinogen in the airports. They said, we're not going to irradiate our, our, our travelers anymore. But in the United States, they just kept using it until they, they decided to remove it. Uh, it, and it's the same with GMOs. In the United States and Canada, we're the victims, and, and we can't even get the government to label them. 
That I don't understand. An informed consumer. I mean, that's that's a, a, a democratic right. Well, I would have thought, and so that's why I say you boycott it. You know, if I can get at least one thing through to everybody, you cannot be eating canola, corn, I mean, unless it's certified organic, non-GMO certificate or something, and even then, not so much corn. But anyway, as far as commercial corn, no. Commercial soy, absolutely not. Uh, commercial canola, absolutely not. Beet sugar, no. These are the big, big, big destructive GMOs that are in the food supply. Especially the problem is, though, corn. Uh, corn is uh, ingredients from corn. Uh, corn is just about found in everything. And I'm avoiding it to such a degree that uh, when my daughter insisted I should try her corn chips, I said, I don't really eat corn chips. She says they're organic. I was over at her house. Me not eating any GMOs now for five years, you know, that I know of. I ate her corn chips, and I went into anaphylactic shock. If I couldn't have just squeezed out, oregano oil, get me some, I probably would have been dead. And so the oregano oil under the tongue, you know, stopped the shock. But let me tell you this. I talked to my top allergist associates, and they tell me that anaphylactic shock, you know, fatal or nearly fatal, is up 500% since the GMOs were introduced. So people are dying. I'm telling you that. Well, they're just take it all the way back off. to the beginning of our discussion tonight with oregano. I think you, you, we were in a coffee shop in Toronto when you told me uh, that someone who had uh, suffered a snake bite um, this was saved using oregano oil. It's that good. Uh, brown recluse, snake... If you've got a tick on, saturate the cotton, put it on. It's a universal cure. It's not for everything, but it's almost for everything. <laughs> All right, Dr. Cass, always a pleasure. Thank you for this. Yeah, bye-bye. Dr. Cass Ingram, Miracle of Wild Oregano. All right, that's it for me, and uh, back next week from the Elite City Resort Hotel here in Kalamata, Greece. Tim Spreen, thank you for production. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops, move over Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.